Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, buckle up for this one. We have a very interesting group of people around the table this morning. We're going to talk about media measurement, marketing effectiveness and all those fabulous things that are driving much of the discussion and debate across the agency, media and marketing industry at the moment. The group we have this morning is Ali Tilling, who's Chief Strategy Officer at VML YNR, Matt Daniel, who was the just departed marketing effectiveness lead at IAG, Nathan Hodges, who's the Managing Director of Trinity P3, and Mal Dale, who's the General Manager of the Readership Works. We're going to start with you first, Matt. I know you just left IAG, but just explain to us how a marketing effectiveness lead gets a gig at a big insurance company like IAG. How did it come about? Uh, it came about because there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of noise in the industry and it was kind of what should we pay attention to, what shouldn't we pay attention to. And um, when you're dealing with such a long life cycle like insurance, when people try to buy something, generally they'll buy it within a within a snap decision. Insurance, the the, the buying cycle is so long that you can get lost in all of this short term activation. I had a background in a lot of media experiments, so that meant that the role there was a lot of parts where I could inform decisions where I was pretty damn sure that our analytics team were backing up any sales that I said came through were more or less real because there's a lot of stuff that um, where attribution comes in and all this other crap that kind of confuses what you should be looking at. And then I had a kind of um, an input on, on you know, uh, the short-term stuff. But then I always wanted to do sort of a, the brand view. And the more I delved into this type of role, the more I realized that brand matters way more than than we see. And it kind of aligned to what Brent was thinking and going towards. This is Brent Smart, the CMO at, at IAG. Yeah. So it kind of came about that way. And so I, I helped him show um, like uh, that, that IAG needs a, you know, how to invest its money, where to invest its money and, and try to sh- uh, set it up for a long-term growth um, with Brent's vision in mind. So he was, always, he was always wanting to do long-term growth, but he wanted to back it up with not only uh, a, an, a, an effectiveness part of showing it with your own internal data, but also showing it with evidence-based things. It was a role that came about because there was learnings that everyone had, but he didn't know which one to kind of align to. And, and my role was to kind of find out which ones were real and then and then kind of deep dive in our own data to prove it. And how long ago was that? Probably a year and a half ago. They're still on that kind of journey, but it's come a long way since then. And so what did you see, Matt, in 12 months in, what the assumptions were, what the company thought and, and the marketing and media team thought was happening versus when you started to apply some some overlays on effectiveness and following the money, did anything change? Oh, yeah. So a golden line that we had was um, only 1% of the market is in market at any one time. For um, an insurance policy, would it be for, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and, and I think that applies more outside of just insurance. It's actually a pretty good analogy for most kind of products. If you're only taking, there's only 1% of the market available at any, t- any one time, uh, that's only about like 400,000 Australians or something like that. And you're only going to get in line with your market share. And if you're able to look at uh, a short-term response campaign, um, you're going to get basically a fair share of that pie and maybe a little bit more, but not much more than that. So if you, what, what we did was showing that, look, if you invest all of this money that you've got into short-term activation, you're only going to get a certain amount of that pie. And it became a great analogy showing that 
if you increased your budget by a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars, you're only going to get, you know, five percent more, seven percent more, eight percent, eight point five percent, like not too much more than you would. There's a there's big diminishing returns that came in. So it showed and, and you can kind of take away from that being like, OK, so if short term activation can only grab a small portion of that, uh, that pool that's available, the other pool that's available is the brand. Because anyone that, that kind of sees an ad, they don't they don't respond to it straight away. They respond to it over time. And insurance is the is the hardest kind of industry where that well one of the hardest industries where that comes in. Um, cars are also a good example. Things that have a long buying cycle. That's how we kind of came about that kind of thing. And so what what did you do differently as a result of uh, some of this data coming in? Because this is I mean this discussion is around the sort of the fuzziness around measurement and metrics and trying to make sense of all the disparate options, the, the, the various options that are out there. But so what did you end up doing? What sort of clarity to bring? So I worked very closely with the analytics team. So they have a, a big team of, um, of data scientists where they have no incentive to tell the business what they want to hear. They have an incentive to tell them what they think is realistic. And that's kind of their remit. When you're able to have clarity like that, there's no incentive because they're aligned to, you know, finding a closer answer to the truth and not a KPI for this quarter or next quarter. It means that they can have a real, a real stake in the company's future. Um, so when we looked at the data, we realized that there's, there's a lot of things that people look at that you don't really need to look at. Um, so w- for one instance, <clears throat> if, I, if I ever mentioned to, um, if, if people can get really sucked into um, all, a lot of metrics that don't matter, um, so if, if Brent, for, for example, speaks to, um, any sort of impressions or any sort of clicks or anything like that, that's a total waste of time. There's stuff that people need to know. And then there's stuff that are indicators for growth. And, and all of those indicators are stuff that maybe Brent would need to know, but then there's a lot of other stuff that are indicators for, is the campaign doing well that are, that are purely for practitioners. And there, and a lot of people get stuck on that kind of stuff and they end up communicating them to the wrong parties. And that's where it gets really confusing. And so I just try to provide clarity of here's what you should look at in terms of a short-term uh, campaigns, here we should look at for a long-term campaign. All the other stuff, everyone else needs to know, but you don't really need to know that because it will waste your time with it. Ali, how does this sound to you with what you're seeing across your client base, the sort of things that Matt's talking about? Is that a broader conversation that you're having now? And what is the what what is the the, the underlying um, concerns you have around the measurement and metrics of this industry? Because they are they are prolific and sometimes very confusing. Definitely, it's something that is absolutely we're grappling with every every day and with different clients in different ways, and also with the way that we ourselves kind of set up and measure campaigns or things that we're working on. I suppose it field and binet is one of the kind of defining theories of our time, I guess. I mean, I think it will be one of those things that is helping us make better work for the next 10 or so years, I'd say. But I think it's partly about helping clients and helping ourselves actually practically apply that theory and that information. You know, it's the long and the short of it. And I think to Matt's point, it's about really making sure that we are not only thinking about the the theory side of that, but how that actually affects us in day-to-day decision-making, who needs to know what and why, and how that helps us you know, decide between one campaign, one idea or, or another, and, how, and the shape those are going to take over time. I think as well, though, it's that point about telling me what I want to hear, I think is really interesting. Because I think, you know, the way that the human brain works, we are all about 
telling ourselves what we want to hear. I mean, that is the way that you kind of get through life is those shortcuts. And I think um, something I've been working on a lot recently is the idea of surrogation, which is a tendency that your brain, every human brain has, because it's a way of dealing with a load of information. But where it gets interesting in terms of metrics, I think, is that we tend to kind of value what we can measure over what it is we're actually trying to achieve. And that's a fairly well-known, well-known thing. But I think um, there's been quite a lot of work around this recently. And I had I had an example in my own life, and maybe I'm just a bit crap, I don't know. But so I love running. And the reason that I love running, what I'm actually trying to achieve is health and, you know, a clear head and having a bit of time to myself. But I've got also, I'm lucky enough to have an Apple Watch, which measures, it doesn't measure those things. It can't measure my clear head. It can only measure, you know, how many, how far I'm going or how many steps I'm taking or what time I've done it in. And the other, a couple of weeks ago, I um, I hadn't charged my watch overnight. So I got up and I got ready to go for my run and I was thinking about my clear head and, you know, I was going to be all healthy and, um, yeah, got all the effort to get into my running clothes and was like, oh, like my watch isn't charged. So it's as if it would never happen. Like I couldn't measure it. So I actually took off my running clothes. You didn't go for a run? No, got back into bed. Because you couldn't measure yeah, it? Because I couldn't measure it. Even though, even though what I was actually going to, measure on my watch like my eyes it does this thing where it like closes a ring and then fireworks happen like like not in your life on the screen um this is just the more I tell this story the more I'm like I'm actually the saddest person in the history of the world but um yeah it's just a good example of the things that your brain and we as marketers I think more white is the probably the wider and more important point here you do get addicted to your real-time dashboard and your I need to know about these 10 things and that's all great and those things in the right context can be helpful but I think just that focus on what are the two or three things that are actually valuable and that are actually going to help you make a decision for the future and are actually indicators of what you're trying to achieve not just an indicator of something that because I can measure it is important. And Nathan do you in your travels across um, client land with a lot of brands and marketers uh, I guess you'll see plenty of this Exactly so. Isn't it, isn't it funny? So what Ali was talking about there, we, as marketers, we spend all of our time trying to work out what humans are doing and what they've done and what they're about to do. But of course, we're not immune to exactly that kind of diagnosis and behavior ourselves as an industry. And what we see uh, is, is a kind of a marketing industry at the moment, if I can be very general, I'm not going to include you in this, Matt. We see an industry that's kind of um, trapped in the investment and the, uh, and the, and the money that it's spent on measurement and measurement and measurement and the tech that follows that and goes all the way down through to the bottom of the funnel. And it's very difficult for us as an industry then to turn around to our CFOs and our CEOs and the other people in the C-suite, I hate that phrase, the other important people in the business and say, oh, by the way, uh, really sorry, but it's not that measurement stuff that we did. Uh, it's actually not the only thing. The other thing was the thing that we can't measure that's actually really valid that we haven't got metrics against and we're going to have to go and do that. And by the way, the money we're spending, we won't be as accountable as we pretended to be for the last five or 10 years. It's a really difficult conversation for marketers to have. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of water flown under, that, uh, flown under that bridge. There's a lot of clever salespeople who've put a lot of tech in, uh, which marketers are still paying for and still can't use and still don't understand. And I love that point you made, you made Matt, where you said, um, and it's great to hear at, at IAG, don't get stuck on the detail, which is for practitioners. Stick on the big stuff. Now, IAG and, and Brent and, and, and you guys, you've managed to do that, but so many marketers are still 
still trying to make that manoeuvre. It's really hard. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's especially difficult when, um, to your point, we've all invested, as an industry, we've all invested not only a lot of money and a lot of time in setting up these ways of measuring different things, and, and often they're really kind of well-developed, but also the the kind of the emotional investment that goes into that and actually trying to use it and trying to apply it and trying to understand it. And then to to sort of turn around and say, well, actually, that's, you know, parts of that are still important, but it's not the be all and end all. I mean, that's a really, it's a difficult thing. So how are the marketers you're talking to, Nathan, how are they uh, um, reverse engineering some of the uh, corners that have got themselves into around measurement? What are they doing about that? Are they doing anything? Are they doing anything or are they just trying to sort of hide it? Well, they have to. They have to do something because the sales are not there. The brands are suffering. The you know the the, the long term measures are are actually now becoming evidence. So they've got to do something. But it's not an easy conversation. Things like the conference that we all we all met at. Um, things like this conversation. Things like talking much more about about Lesbonettes and Peter Field's work. Yeah. It starts to make it a bit more of a legitimate thing. But I mean, you know, if I think about. The number of marketers of a certain age who wanted to put their hands up a couple of years ago and say, oh, by the way, I don't think this digital thing is very useful or I don't think this metrics thing is very useful. You know, you get shot down as a dinosaur at that point, whereas now at least the conversation can be had. But how are they How are they moving, Paul? Really slowly. You can have a different type of conversation where if you're all of the MarTech and everything else we've done so far, actually has become you've become really good at understanding the short-term effects. So, so a short-term effect, it, it would be, you know, it, it has a small, it, it's useful to say it has a smaller sales effect, but you have a really good numerical understanding of it. You put X in, you get Y up. However, with the, with the long-term stuff, that's the, that's the biggest mystery in that, that you know, um, Lesbian and Pedophile are trying to, you know. Uh, unravel. <laughs> unravel, but it has a larger sales impact, but people have a very poor numerical understanding of it. So if you pump, $10 million into TV, you're not really sure what's going to come out. You have a general rough understanding, but understanding uncertainty is really key for that. So your uncertainty in, in short-term activation is, I reckon it's going to deliver around X amount of sales with, you know, between these kind of barriers. Um, and long-term is like, ah, oh, well, I think it's going to deliver between X amount of sales, but I'm not that confident and you're not going to see it for like nine months. How did you go in your conversations, Matt, with the technologists, with the personalization advocates inside the business and outs and in the industry where they are very focused on you can follow the chain all the way through and see um, and get it and see a response and, and, and in fact in many in many instances on the with the technologists, uh, brand doesn't even they don't even understand mm-hmm. the role of brand building and think and probably diss it. So did you have conversations where you, you were challenged on some of your on some of your thinking? Of course. I, I, I kind of put it down to like everything I've seen in personalization is, you know, you might get 10% uplift, but it costs you 20% to get there. The often about personalization is that they're often in the short-term land, landscape. Um, and, and I think there's also, they also confuse it with um, long-term stuff in terms of uh, like one-to-one customer engagement and things like that, where I think there's an inherent value behind one-to-one, even if people don't engage with it. Um, as in, if I send an email and you don't open it, there's something still there because people expect you to do that. But the kind of conversations around personalization was the trade-offs are generally not really worth it, but it doesn't hurt to do them because if it costs you a lot of money to do it, look, it, you got to hope the returns are there. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, and, and you can try a new hypothesis, but, but often cases that you can do 
great treatment control setups. The, one of the things that MarTech has done is there are solid cases where you can do treatment control groups really tightly and you can test assumptions and actually know the, under, uh, the underlying problem. And then there's other things where you have a gut feel and you should just sometimes go with it. The, it balancing those two expectations is hard, but you definitely can do it in, in today's kind of world, but it's going to get murky in the future, but you can still do it. Um, whether it's worth it or not is a completely different kind of, kind of conversation. Um, ROI is really difficult for a reason. And you actually think ROI is going to get worse in this transition, don't you, from short-term or the recalibration? Because it's not either or, right? It's both. It's finding, it's finding the mix. But you think things are going to get a little bit tougher on brand or, or results? Is that right? I think efficiency is going to get worse. So the, the efficiency of campaigns are getting worse because the amount of short-term campaigns are, coming, uh, are, are increasing. So if the amount of um, short-term campaigns are increasing, that means there's going to be a, a – and everyone's kind of thinking brand now. Let's say that everyone changes to brand today. Let's say that the, the, you, everyone, the kind of amount of short-term campaigns just stops and everyone goes long-term. The effects between the, the stuff that people see and the, the long-term gains that people want are generally longer than people think. And I know uh, the, a lot of the research says um, short-term is less than six months, long-term is you know, longer than six months. But each industry has its own lag and understanding that lag is kind of key. So if there, let's say, back to the example, if everyone goes long-term and you don't understand that lag, that means that uh, everything's going to get a, everything's going to look bad for a while before those effects start to come in. Um, so that's why I kind of think it's going to get worse. Did you get nervous at all waiting for those numbers to look like they were uh, going to be effective as the marketing effectiveness lead at IAG? We had a healthy understanding of of that these effects are, are not apparent straight away. Um, and we had, and I know you hate the term C-suite, but we had C-suite buy-in. So that meant that the long-term stuff was understood and is being catered for. Whether that trickles down into other departments is, a, is another discussion, but, but um, it, it like uh, Brent's lucky to have C-suite buy-in. Ali, what is happening right now for you in this conversation between um, short, long, and the right metrics? What, what, which metrics uh, have you suggested any be spiked and burnt at the stake, um, or what is what is the, uh, the the prevailing conversation you're having on, on your amongst your portfolio? Probably the prevailing part of the conversation is actually just making sure that it is the long and the short of it. I think that's one of the key things is I think to Matt's point, we kind of tend to as a as a whole industry, it's like everybody run over here and then everybody run over here. And actually, I think one of the the things that's really compelling about the whole suite of work that um, field and Binet, Binet, I never know. Yeah, he always person. called himself Binet. Binet. I worked with him before. OK, OK, so we'll go we'll go Binet. But um, it is that it is that combination that I think is really, really interesting. And um, I think in a way is also one of the hard things for um, us to grapple with in the day-to-day is almost that, like, where's that third horizon of almost the medium term? Like, how am I bridging between these short-term things that I'm measuring all the time and this long-term, slightly more, um, slightly harder to measure, kind of harder to to really get a, a grip on concept of long-term, longer-term brand building. And some of the things we talk about, you know, being hopefully things that last for, you know, five five or more years. Well, whoever's who formulated them are really going to be around to still be kind of understanding. Yeah, right. well, really. I mean, so, I mean, obviously some will be, but I think that's one of the things that, that, can, be, um, that can be hard in the day-to-day. I think the other thing is um, the most recent um, report that um, they did was about effectiveness in context. 
Um, and I think context is still really king for this. Um, and I think that's where, for me, things along the lines of thick data come in. Like we have focused so much as an industry on what we can quantify, literally quantify. And that's great. And it has opened up so many new avenues and all of those things. And I don't want to devalue that at all. But it's still about understanding. We need to understand depth as well as scale. And thick means what? So thick. thick Not me. Um, thick comes from thick data is actually a term that comes from there's an ethnographer called Clifford Gitts who did a lot of work back in I think sort of the 1950s 60s and he focused on thick description which was giving a lot of detail around the way people make decisions the way they live their lives the cultural context they're living in and what thick data does is try to kind of think about what people actually value and you need it's you it's hard to do that through numbers alone. You need to have context. You need to understand context and help people, help sort of uncover people's models of how their world works in their head. And that can open up different avenues for, for growth as well, actually. And I think it's the, and I'm not advocating for, you know, totally forget about quant at all. I'm really not. But I think it's the, we probably need to get back to more of a diversity of data. You know, we talk about diversity in our industry and diversity of perspectives and diversity of people, which is really important. But then if we're getting all our, you know, we need to apply that to ourselves. I think what Nathan was saying before about, you know, we make so much effort to understand behaviour of people that we're, you know, our sort of intended victims, so to speak. Um, but we need to, um, I think, understand where our different where our data is coming from and think about different sources so of that. So more qualitative layers that go into some of this stuff? Is that what you're talking about yeah. in, into, into dashboards, if you like? I think, yeah, I think qualitative and I think ethnographic particularly right. as well. I mean, I know focus groups have got a bad rap these days and I think I think used in the right way, they can still be really powerful. That's my view. Um, but I think just that combination of real kind of proper ethnographic work um, qual work done through groups in the right place at the right time and then really making sure that we're measuring quantitatively the right things at the right time and actually analysing is having the time and the dedication I guess to analyse all of that to form a holistic picture. Mel how does this all work for uh, media owners and and you know you, you've got um, metrics going on in terms of your audience metrics for uh, news media um, the news, news media industry um, when you start hearing this sort of conversation, what does it what does it mean for what you're doing and other media suppliers in in, in trying to uh, I guess contribute more valuable, usable, actionable data? I guess it confirms um, our initial um, instinct, which was to make our data available to as many people as possible to use it in their own platforms rather than trying to do everything ourselves. Right, and you think also that more media channels need to work more closely on 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 this on this data um, uh, feed, if you like. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, th- I think if you're referring to some of the developments that we've seen in markets like South Africa and in the Netherlands, where you've got all of the joint uh, industry committees coming together and doing a tender for you know for for cross media measurement, I think we're certainly going to see more of that. I think you know the drivers of that are things like cost pressures. You know, I mean, people are going to want to consolidate. Um, then you're seeing consolidation of ownership as well, which means that more people have got more interest in other channels, whether, you know, whether you're one media corporation. So um, I think we'll definitely see a trend towards that. And I, I would welcome that because I think um, 
anything that provides a kind of more join, joins at the dots more across media and, and makes the data uh, more useful, I think, has got to be a good thing. Matt, how much did media, how much of the media inputs come into your effectiveness analysis um, with some of the stuff that, that well, the, the, the data that, say, Mel's producing at the Readership Works? Um, did you ever see that, cite that, use it, and all the other media channels that are producing data? Um, not so specifically, Emma, but, but a lot of media data was a, a lot of what I did. Um, in a lot of uh, around the the kind of how much each channel was invested and in the reach associated with all of them, I love Karen Nelson Field's work where she talks about um, uh, the the attention and reach and reach is not all equal. So we, we often look at a like share of voice as a as a proxy for um, for how much a brand is spending, but you can kind of increase share of voice just by increasing the amount of spend you've got in one channel. Um, but the, the way people uh, actually pay attention to ads are not the same. So where we looked at how much a brand should invest and the brands that I represent and how much they should invest, um, it's kind of understanding reach with impact. And, and impact is a, a word that is more of a gut feel because the, the reach associated with TV as opposed to the reach associated with Facebook as opposed to out of home, they're vastly different because the amount of attention that people pay to each one. And so that's where I looked at the type of media investment and the type of attention gained with both of those. These are disturbing words when you start talking about gut feel rather than hard analytics and hard data. Um, you know, the, what happens there, Nathan, when, when Matt starts talking about um, gut feel around data, it must disturb a few marketing teams that are hard on the, on the dashboards. I think our observation would be that if, if a marketing team is talking about hard data and not any gut feel at all, or they're talking about gut feel and no hard data, then they're off track. This, yeah. is, this is the job of marketing. It's not amenable to measurement all the time, mm. and sometimes it pretty well is. In the wrap-up, I'm going to ask you all to, to uh, have a look at your crystal balls here and give us an indication of what you think is going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months and perhaps start with you, Matt, and some tips for other marketing teams that are looking at effectiveness and marketing effectiveness. Um, what would you say to them they need to do uh, first up and what do you think is going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months? Everyone has access to basically the same information. Um, it's how you use it. It's about how you take that research and apply it to your own business. For the next 12 to 18 months, it's good that everyone's moving towards this, this kind of brand play. The conversation, at least, as we've suggested, right? <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and hopefully people follow that trend. The measurement will come, and I think we're only going to get better at measuring the brand. Nathan, what's your, what's your big tips on what's going to happen? Oh, look, I'm always an optimist about marketing, so I'm really hoping we'll see some really, really brave campaigns and some brave marketing initiatives over the next 12 to 18 months that change the game in Australia and I think you know that you can feel that bubbling under I was going to say have you seen any hard are you seen any good signals of that actually underway anywhere I'm seeing some people getting their stuff together right <laughs> I really am yeah I mean it's, it's 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 time we woke up as an industry and I think we're doing it Ellie 12 to 18 months I agree with Nathan always an optimist about these things and I think um definitely we are waking up to to it and I think just Probably my top thing would be, or certainly my top tip to myself, is remembering that it is the long and the short of it and thinking about both of those things and how they work together. And Mel Dale, in your world, uh, what's happening in the next 12 to 18 months around media metrics and the big uh, hot buttons? Well, I'd keep an, an eye on Voz. It'd be very interesting to see how that goes because that will give us an indication of just how um, how willing and able people are to, to share and merge data with um, with media metrics. The next 18 months for media measurement and how it plays into the broader effectiveness uh, uh, argument? I think we're going to see greater sharing uh, of data uh, 
between databases, uh, between media metrics and other third-party data sets. I think there's an appetite for it, and I think um, it will help inform this conversation about the, the longer-term brand building as well. Well, thank you all. We look forward to seeing what happens in about a year's time when everything uh, across our screens and um, and our media has uh, got, got more brand and long-term play in it. Thank you all for joining us today. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.